So this week's Torah portion is, uh, the Parsha is called Behalatcha. Behalatcha. Not an easy one to say. But I will tell you there's a whole latcha to read and talk about in Beholatcha. Oh, there's a whole latcha in Beholatcha. Thank you, Lord, for the whole latcha that you have in your word. Because your word is a whole latcha to chew on, to eat, to read to digest, to nourish us. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. It's a whole lotcha, and we want a lot more of what you have for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. Thank you, 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 Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, so about 2.5 months ago on the Jewish calendar, it was Nisan 1, the first day of the first month of the Jewish year and of the biblical prophetic year. Um, We had a service here on the first day of the first month on Nisan 1, biblically, is the day that the high priest gets ordained, gets anointed, gets inaugurated. First day of the first month, and it gets anointed with oil, and we had a service here, as we've been doing every year since I've been the rabbi, on the first day of the first month, where everybody gets anointed. So in this week's Torah portion, Beholatcha, we have another ordination ceremony. It is not the high priest, but it is the ordination ceremony of the Levites, So the Levites get their ordination in this Torah portion, their inauguration into service. So in case people are unaware of the difference between the Levites and the priests, let me just take a step back and give you a very simple answer to that. So there once was a man, sounds like a limerick, there once was a man named Levi. In Hebrew, it's Levi. But in English, it's, it's anglicized often to Levi, as in the genes. So Levi, he was one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Very simply, all of the sons of Levi, all throughout generations, are the Levites. Very, very simple. I am a Levite, by the way. My great 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 grandfather is Levi. He's my grandfather, the biblical character of Levi. So of his generations, all of them are Levites. You go a couple generations down and you see a guy named Aaron. Aaron is a Levite. The Lord ordained Aaron and his sons for all generations to be priests, kohenim, which means that all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. The priests had a specific function. Uh, They bore the sins of the people. They're the ones who made the sacrifices in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The Levites 
were the workers around the, the, the tabernacle and the temple. They supported the high priest. They did the construction. They carried the ark. They cleaned up. They did all these types of things. Um, so they were the helpers of the high priest. And it's an amazing revelation when you think of Yeshua being the high priest. He's the one who makes the atonement. He's the one who has the sins on his body. And we are like Levites who facilitate that. We facilitate that. He's the one who makes the atonement. But where his arms and his legs in the system down here? There's, there's a lot of equation in the scripture between the people of God, the ones who believe in Yeshua, his body, and the Levites. If you think about it, the Levites didn't get any land in the distribution of land in Israel. When the Israelites came in and the Canaanites went out, the Israelites had land split up for them. God gave this tribe this land and this tribe that land. The Levites got no land because the Lord was their inheritance. So when Yeshua says in the book of John that we are of the world, but not in, I'm sorry, we are in the world, but not of the world. We're in the population, but we're not of the population. We're with the people, but our inheritance is not here. That's because the Levites were in the world, in the population, but they were not of the population. Do you see it? Bless the Lord. So in this Torah portion, we see the inauguration of the Levites, and they go through a, a nice ceremony very similar to what we saw with the children. It was wonderful how he brought that forward. All the Levites came forward, and all the people of Israel laid hands on them, and then they did you know, some sacrifices, and the Levites, as it says, became a wave offering to the Lord. It was their ordination. It was their ordination ceremony. And it goes through that ceremony in this week's Torah portion. But in this week's Torah portion, I want to focus on something very interesting that the Lord says about the Levites. Now, many of us know who the Levites are and that they're the ones who functioned in the tabernacle, but there's a little bit about the Levites and their function in the tabernacle that many people don't know, and we're going to dig into this, and we're going we're to take a look at something more in depth, perhaps something you've never seen before or did not know. And I'm going to go into some scripture here. This is from our Torah portion. This is uh, God speaking, obviously, through Moses, for they, the Levites, are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. And here's where you get something that may make you go, hmm. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people, I have taken them, the Levites, for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. And I have taken the Levites 
instead of the firstborn among the people of Israel. So what is this saying? And this might be new information for many of you, although it is biblical information. The Levites being God's handy helpers was not God's first choice and first plan. The first plan where his helpers were going to be the firstborn of all the tribes. The firstborn was originally his special possession that is going to help minister in the tabernacle system. And he changed that to be the Levites. Now, why did he change that? So there's incredible revelation. I could do a whole nother message on the Levites and why they merited this position. But to summarize, when God came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, and all the people were worshiping an idol, the golden calf, all of the tribes did that, including the firstborn. And then Moses said, here's a line, who's with me? And it was the Levites that crossed the line and said, we're not worshiping that. So it was the sin, the idolatrous sin of all the tribes of Israel where they lost that place. And God said the Levites, because they crossed the line and would not worship an idol, they then became his designated special portion to serve in the tabernacle. Spiritually, there is implication here. I'll just say this very brief. Let's face it. Listen, Israel is God's firstborn. The Bible says that Israel is God's firstborn. God says it explicitly. Israel is my firstborn. But the firstborn sinned was idolatrous. And now the designated helpers are the ones related to the high priest. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? The fact that it was the firstborn, but they sinned. So God put in like a, another plan, which is the ones related to the high priest. Yeshua is the high priest. Do you see it? It's amazing, amazing, amazing revelation. But what did the firstborns do to merit this position? Now, firstborns in ancient culture always had a special place. Especially in biblical times, it was a cultural norm for the firstborn to have a special place. This is why we even see this happening sometimes in scripture. We see Jacob who fell in love with Rachel and worked seven years for the woman he loved. And he loved her so much it just felt like a few days, those seven years of work. And now it was wedding time and wedding night time. And all of a sudden his dad-in-law, Lavan, Laban, brought in Leah secretly into the tent. We know the story? And Laban said, 
Leia's the firstborn. We just don't do it the way you're saying. Do you know? It's culturally appropriate to have the firstborn get married first. That's what culture says. But do you think that the Lord is limited to cultural limitations? Do you think the Lord honors cultural limitations so much? I tell you, there is a kingdom truth that goes far beyond cultural norms. God will turn cultural norms on its head to bring a greater reality of the kingdom. A greater reality of the kingdom. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Don't be conformed to culture. Culture will dictate, this is not right. This is right. This is the way you're supposed to act. And God turns it all on his head, on its head, to bring a greater reality, a spirit reality, to bring healing in areas that culture tries but cannot. Do not be conformed to the world, to culture, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then know the perfect and acceptable will of God. Culture will say this is acceptable, this is not acceptable, this is acceptable, this is, be transformed and then know what the acceptable will of God is. Jacob, the one who didn't get his wife originally because of cultural norms, later on in his years, learn that there's greater truth than cultural norms. Because he was old in years and his eyes were dim and now Joseph brings his Gentile sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the ones born to Joseph in Egypt, to, to Jacob with his eyes dim to get blessed. And, we say, and, and Joseph also set it up culturally perfectly, the firstborn on the right side to get the right hand. If the firstborn were the original helpers in the tabernacle. And it wasn't just the cultural norm that God established them in that way. What did they do to merit the position? If it wasn't just culture that enabled the firstborn to have this special status as God's special called out people, if it wasn't culture, if it wasn't just the thing to do at that time, then what was it? For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. Okay, good. Why? On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctify them to myself. What is God saying here? And what is the spirit? Spirit of God saying to us today that the firstborn went through judgment and great tragedy and suffering and tribulation and death. And because of what they went through, their suffering caused God to sanctify them. 
So what is God saying? When we suffer greatly, and when the suffering reaches its completion, he sanctifies us. God brings us into the fire. And when the fire, as long as it may take, when it serves its function, when the fire serves its function, he pulls us out of the flame and says, now you are sanctified. Now you are my holy possession. See, it's different from salvation. All of the people of Israel left Egypt through the blood of the lamb. But it was the firstborn that suffered. And it was the firstborn that were sanctified. This is why Yeshua is our salvation for all people. What he did on the cross is salvation for all people. And then he said, in order to be my, my disciple, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. And I tell you right now, if I could just be so blunt, you can be saved, but if you want to work for God, and if you want to work in his tabernacle, the requirement is suffering and sanctification through fire. And if you don't go through the suffering and you don't let the fire accomplish what it's designed to do, you're saved, but you're not yet fit to serve in his tabernacle. The fire has a function to sanctify us. And we understand the cleaning of, we have dross and we're gold and we have the dross coming off and that's all true. But it's more than that. It's there just to be there so God can say, enough, pull us out and now you are holy and ready to serve. Um, let me just give a quick personal example. Now personal examples are personal. My hell is not your hell and your hell is not my hell. And if I give you my example of my hell, you may say, what the hell? My hell's a whole lot worse than your hell. But let me give you an example of some fire that I went through in my life, and it pertained to my job. Bear with me. So back, way back when, Around year 2000, Y2K, I was a computer programmer at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals and in New York City, and I loved my job. I was good at it. I could make my computer dance and sing and do jumping jacks until they decided to outsource all computer programmers to India, because there are extremely talented folks in India that can do the exact same thing that I do for like five bucks an hour. So they outsourced 
which is perfectly fine, by the way. Independent companies can do what they want. But that's what they did. So they outsourced computer programming, and for the computer programmers that were on staff, like me, they either fired or they turned into managers. Project managers. I was one of the lucky ones to be turned into a project manager. I did not have any schooling for project management. I had no idea what to do, how to do it. I didn't know how to run a meeting, facilitate anything, manage issues, manage risks, manage budgets, manage people. I didn't know what I was doing. But here I was with no training, no longer a computer programmer. I was a project manager. And I stunk at it. My reviews were terrible. I didn't know what I was doing. My projects were a disaster. My, the consultants I were managing did not even want to report to me. I had other colleagues telling them, just don't listen to Brian. He doesn't know what he's talking about. 11 years. I tried. My projects were disasters. I would work sometimes 48 hours straight without sleep. Literally losing my sanity because of lack of sleep. Getting calls at three, all hours of the morning because what I was supporting, what I was in charge of was breaking all over the place and I just did not know how to fix it. 11 years. I didn't know what I was doing. My bosses were writing me up. Reviews were terrible. And I was like, God, get me out of this place. I want to go back to computer programming. But I couldn't. I stayed where I was 11 years. It was hell. It was hell. Just ask Susie, who also was woken up by those three in the morning phone calls, and then me not coming back to bed for two more days, spending more nights than I should have in an office, not sleeping. 11 years. It's a long time. It was hell. Until they finally fired me. That was the best day of my life. I danced around that place like I used to make computers dance. People would see me bounce down the hall. Why is Brian so happy? I was fired! I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. They would literally talk amongst themselves. I've never seen Brian so happy. What's he so happy about? Why, I've ne why is he so happy that he was fired? I've never seen somebody's... What's his problem? I was happy. So I lose my job. I'm living here in Rhode Island. And now I had a couple of months of unemployment. And I get a job at Citizens Bank. Now, my first idea was to go back to computer programming because that's what I was good at. And I don't know how to do project management because that's what I'm terrible at. But I couldn't get a job in computer programming anymore for the same reason that they outsourced 
could just they don't need a they don't need me. It's it's not something that first of all, I didn't have the skill set anymore after eleven years. So I made my resume, lied my butt off on how great of a project manager I am, told them what a great success I was, eventually had my interview at Citizens Bank. They read my resume, which was all lies. Tammy, don't tell my boss. Tammy and I work a few feet from each other. <laughs> lied my tuchus off lied in my interviews about how great I was. And they got, I got the job in 2012. So I go into Citizens Bank, and now they start giving me projects. Uh-oh. <laughs> and they give me an assignment, and I look at it, and I went, I know how to do this. I remember this from Pfizer. And I did it. And I succeeded at it. More than exceeded. And they gave me something new. And I looked at it. And I went, I remember this from Pfizer. And I succeeded at it. And I excelled at it. And I got accolades from my boss, and my boss's boss, and my boss's boss's boss, and my boss's 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 boss, and my boss's 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 boss, Rob Allen, directly. And they would give me something else. And I looked at it, and I remembered how to do it. The same things I failed at, the exact same things. I failed at, and I excelled at it. And now I'm working still at Citizens Bank. I'm under an anointing of grace at Citizens Bank. And I say this humbly, it's like I can't fail. Like, I can, like, sneeze in this direction, and management will be going, oh, my God, did you see that? It's the Lord. But when this started happening, I asked God in the most holy way I could, what? What is happening here? And he said, the fire served its function. I pulled you out of the fire, and now you're going to operate in blessing and anointing. The fire served its function. And now, because I've went through it, I will operate with his blessing and his anointing. And God said, now that you've been through the fire, you have what it takes to work in my tabernacle. Nine months later, Rabbi Peter anoints me to be the rabbi here. Nine months later, the fire has a function. The suffering is for a purpose. 
to make us holy. If Yeshua suffered and received glory, on the other side of our suffering is glory. It says that we participate in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. What is on the other side of your suffering? The power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection is on the other side of your suffering. Suffering produces perseverance, character, hope. What is on the other side of your suffering? Perseverance. What is on the other side of your suffering? Character. What is on the other side of your suffering? Hope. There's an incredible story that we're going to hit in two weeks in the portions, and it is the story of Korah. Korah. There once was a man named Korah who's in that portion of Torah. What was it? He rebelled against Moses. Now he's pushing up roses, and he won't rebel anymore. So we're going to read about Korah in two weeks. So to tell you what happened with Korah, and there's an amazing revelation in this that I'm going to speak over you prophetically right now because I feel it as fire in my bones. Korah took 250 dudes to rebel against Moses and Aaron, and they said, it's what's up with you elevating yourself and your brother, Mr. Nepotism Aaron, to these high places? And Moses was like, you guys are God's set-apart holy vessels. He was a Levite, Korah. He was one of the called-out ones. When the children of Israel dwelled around the tabernacle, the Levites were real close. They were guarding the tabernacle. He was one of them. He had a very high place, called out, wasn't enough. Moses and Aaron, why are you elevating yourselves? We're all holy. So Moses had this idea from the Lord. You and your 250 band of rebels, why don't you come to the tabernacle? Aaron's going to come to the tabernacle. Why don't you bring a little censer, a little incense pan where you can, where you can light your incense and Aaron will light his, and we'll see who God chooses. It's very similar to what Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. We'll see who God chooses. So all the 250 came, and Aaron came, and they all lit their censers, and whoom, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the 250. They died because of their sin. They were judged. It was a tragedy. And then God says something very unique. Pull those censers out of the fire. They have become holy to me and hammer them into sheets and make the altar out of that. Oh, I hope you're hearing this in spirit. I hope you're hearing this in spirit. These things were offered in sin by sinful people and they came into judgment and tragedy and suffering. And God, after the fire, said, pull those things out of the blaze. They have become holy. 
and now will be used in the building of the altar of incense itself, where people from all over can come and offer their prayers on those. I feel the Spirit of God saying right now to each of you that the time is coming where he's going to say, pull him out of the fire. He has become holy. Pull her out of the fire. She has become holy. She has become holy. You're suffering in your marriage. I feel the time is coming where God's going to say, pull it out of the fire. It has become holy. You're suffering in your finances. I feel God saying soon, pull it out of the fire for it has become holy. Your health, pull it out of the fire. It has become holy. Bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. In this week's Haftorah portion, which is the prophetic reading that goes along with the Torah reading, those are put together probably within the Babylonian exile, or, no, I'm sorry, they were after the Old Testament completed during like the times of Hanukkah where they were not allowed to read Torah, where the Jews were not allowed to read Torah, they would find scriptures in the prophets that related to the Torah portion and read them. And those scriptures are alive today and read every week in Jewish synagogues. It's called the Haftorah. And the Haftorah portion for this week, let me speak this over you also because there's incredible revelation in exactly what we are talking about. Behold, the priest Joshua was standing before the Lord. The high priest Joshua. Yahushua, Yeshua. With Satan at his hand, at his right hand, ready to accuse him. And the Lord, Hashem Adonai, said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, Hashem Adonai, the Lord, yud Hey vav Hey, the Lord, who chooses Jerusalem, rebukes you, Satan. Isn't he, Joshua, a burning stick that came out of the fire, meaning the fires of Babylon. Because Joshua saw unspeakable tragedy in that exile. He saw Jerusalem being destroyed. He saw people being brutally murdered. He saw much death and he was ragged and it says his clothes were dirty, filthy garments. And God said, the Lord rebuke you Satan, isn't he a stick, a burning stick, pulled out of the fire, pulled out of the fire, pulled out of the fire? Do you hear what this is saying? When we're suffering, we cast out Satan left and right, don't we? We're always casting out Satan, and we should. But then our suffering continues because it's not just a, a demonic attack. God is bringing suffering to bring refinement and sanctification. So it hasn't served its function yet. That's why the rebuking of Satan isn't working. But when it's time, when he pulls you out of the fire like he pulled Joshua out, the Lord rebukes Satan himself. The Lord 
Satan himself. The Lord invokes his own name and says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Do you see it? The Lord himself rebuked Satan. When the time came, he invoked his own name. The Lord rebuked Satan himself and said, get him out of the fire. Get him out of the fire. Remove the filthy garments and put back on his holy vestments, the high priest's garments. In God's timing, the fire brings sanctification and you become his holy people through the fire. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3. This is where he's bringing you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you have gone through the fire and the fire finished its function, the fire will not burn you. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We know the story of Shadrach, of Meshach, and Abednego who were in the fire. And the fire was turned up seven times hotter. So hot that the Babylonian guards even died. And the fire didn't burn them. It didn't even burn their clothes. And we may say that God is bringing us to that place. But I tell you right now that God is bringing you to a greater place than that. Because there was a fourth that went into that fire. Nebuchadnezzar looked and saw that fourth and said, there's one like a son of God in that fire. Where did he come from? God is doing a greater thing than turning you into Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's turning you into the fourth that goes into the fire to protect those and rescue those who are in the fire. That is the purpose of not having the fire affect you anymore. So you can go into hell and not be affected and rescue people that are in there. And that is what God is bringing you to. Bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the firstborn becomes God's holy possession through suffering. And what did the Levites have to do to earn their place as their special portion? You're going to have to tune into another message for that because I don't got time to go there. But I will in an upcoming week. But I'll tell you this right now. Even though the firstborn lost their place as God's holy helpers, it says, because this is the way it is for all time, the firstborn of the people of Israel are mine. Even in the scriptures where he says that the Levites will take their place, he still says, all the firstborn are still mine. They're still my holy possession. They're still my holy possession. 
This is why, no matter what happened with the, with the judgment that came on Israel, where they were kicked out of the land, and now God is showing favor as they've been, that, that has been restored, their status has firstborn, and the favor never left. Never left. And that's why we continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because they, the firstborns, were the ones that were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb on Passover. Remember, it was to protect the firstborns and those who were redeemed by the blood of the lamb is always God's special possession and that can never be taken away. Hallelujah. 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 Let's stand up and let's just declare this together. Let's just close with a little bit of scripture. Repeat after me. I think it's Romans 8. For I declare, hallelujah, that the present suffering does not compare to the glory about to be revealed in us. I declare that the present suffering does not compare to the glory about to be revealed in us. I declare that the present suffering does not compare to the glory that is to be revealed in us. The key word, you don't have to repeat that. The key word, you don't have to repeat that. The key word, it, you don't have to repeat that. The key, the key word is in us. Because if you take out in us, it says that it doesn't compare, the suffering doesn't compare to the glory that is going to be revealed. So we may think it means heaven or the coming of the Messiah. The present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us after we've been through the fire and we are used for his holy purposes this is why the next verse says the creation eagerly awaits the coming the manifestation of the sons of god bless the lord bless the lord hallelujah do we have one more worship within us? Do we have one more worship within us? We have one more worship within us. We played this song last week on Shavuot, Pentecost. Pentecost has a little bit to say about a fire, about a baptizing, baptizing fire. Not of water, but of fire, but of spirit. Can we just lift this song up to the Lord? All-consuming fire, you're our heart's desire. Come back.